Father, we give you praise for the beauty of this day, and above that for the beauty of your holiness. And even in the passages that we're looking at today, as we see that beauty displayed to Moses and the response on his part, it greatly encourages us and strengthens our faith and increases our hope for that one day coming when we will stand also in your presence, but in a way that Moses couldn't even imagine, even on the top of Mount Sinai. Father, we thank you for your graciousness, your truth, your loving kindness, uh, your patience, all these attributes which we'll be looking at today in Scripture and how we experience them day by day and how you are pouring out your great grace upon this world even this day. And we trust as the word is being proclaimed around the world that you will draw many into your kingdom. We pray for your blessing upon the services yet to go uh, here today, uh, concurrently with this class and then the third service, that you'll be very present in the preaching of the word there. And then in each of our Sunday school classes today, Lord, that you will guide that you will bring yourself to a place of manifestation to our, our hearts in a way that will change our attitudes, our thoughts, our actions, and to make us more like Christ. Be present with us in these moments now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If we may, I'd like to turn to Exodus chapter 33 and begin reading at verse 17. Exodus 33, begin reading at verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. Then Moses said, I pray thee, show me thy glory. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, You cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. Then the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock. And it will come about, while my glory is passing by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. This 33rd chapter, which we have been studying the last two, three Sundays, we find, of course, that it is because, it was because of the heinous sin of Israel in the case of the idolatry and heresy related to the golden calf incident that brought God to this place and Moses to this place of relationship and the meetings between God and Moses that we read about in this chapter and in the beginning of the next chapter. God told Moses to inform Israel that because of their great sin, he was no longer going to be in their midst. God was not going to dwell in the midst of Israel. And we noted, uh, I guess it was two weeks ago, that Moses established a tent outside the camp, a tent of meeting. And that tent of meeting was sort of a a symbol, a sign, a, a living example of the fact that God is now no longer in their midst. But when God then proclaimed to Moses that I expect you to lead this people now up to the land of Canaan, Moses in great intercession came before God 
and told God that, implored God, that it was not possible for him to lead Israel to Canaan unless God was in their midst. And he prayed that beautiful prayer that we read last week in verse 13. Now therefore I pray thee, if I have found favor in thy sight, let me know thy ways that I may know thee, so that I may find favor in thy sight. Consider too that this nation is thy people. God responded to Moses' prayer in the affirmative. And he said, I will be with you and I will be in the midst of Israel. Again, we have to understand that this is not Moses changing God's mind. It is Moses serving as the intercessor God called him to be so that God would do as God intended to do all along. Furthermore, God told Moses that he knew him intimately. He says, I, I know you by name. And by that, of course, he meant I know you inside and out. I know the very warp and woof of your character. And what that, what that elicited in Moses was a reciprocal a desire to know God intimately, and so he says, show me thy glory. This was a cry from the very depths of Moses' being. This was not a, a just kind of a little tin, you know, uh, uh, tingle in his body, oh, maybe I get to see God here, you know, or some kind of an idea that he would have something to boast about. No, it was a cry from the depths of his soul, oh God, that I might know you as you know me. What's interesting is God does not fault Moses here. He does not say you've been acting impetuously. This is an irreverent prayer that you have prayed. Rather, he graciously grants Moses' request. He said to Moses that he would reveal to him his goodness. And we have to understand that word goodness there is meaning his character and his nature. And as we'll be seeing in the next chapter, God will reveal to him many of his attributes. And certainly not all of his attributes, but many of his attributes, which of course will even more display his true nature. And then he would proclaim his name, that name which, of course, we know is the name above every name, and the name that reveals who God is. But all of this would be as a veiled expression of his glory. And, and I think that's important for us to remember. He told Moses, I will be doing this not because you have earned it, not because as leader of Israel you deserve it, I will grant this request of yours because I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And then he told Moses that he could not reveal his unveiled glory to him because no man in his sinful state has ever seen the unveiled glory of God and lived. So he would see the veiled glory of God. And so we have this, this beautiful statement here, this beautiful picture that's given to us in the 22nd verse that he says, and it will come about while my glory is passing by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And of course, we have so often sung the hymn that's based on that passage, that verse. So Moses was placed by God in the cleft of the rock, in a cave there on Mount Sinai. And it's very interesting, it's speculative, but it's very possible that this is the same cave that 500 years later Elijah found himself in and witnessed God also as God came by and said he was not in the storm and he was not in the fire, but he was in the still small voice. It's very possible it is the same cave. God allowed Moses then to witness his back. 
God protected in there, covered him there with his hand, meaning that he protected Moses from the uh, incineration that would have come from witnessing the unveiled glory of God. God allowed him to witness his back, as it were. I, I kind of like to think of this as the afterglow of his glory. God has passed by and the firmament just glows with his presence. And so Moses witnessed that afterglow. It's really hard for us to, to put ourselves in Moses' sandals here because there has been nothing in my experience and I don't believe anything in your experience that even comes close to this, this event on Mount Sinai. And so we can't even intelligently speculate as to what Moses saw or what Moses felt here. All we can know is that somehow Moses received a glimpse of the glory of God both visually and audibly. He heard the voice of God. He saw something of the glory of God. It was not an imagination. It was not a vision. It was not a dream. It was while he was fully alert and awake. This experience, of course, is unique in Scripture. It's mind-boggling as you try to dwell on it, I would feel. Certainly, it prepared Moses for this encounter we'll be looking at uh, this morning also that is described in the 34th chapter. Now, it's very important as we look at this, I believe anyway, uh, we, we could look at this and we'd say, oh man, I sure wish I'd been there with Moses. Moses, of course, saw something of the glory of God with his fleshly eye. And he heard the voice of God with his fleshly ear. This was very true and very real. But I don't think we should be jealous of his experience or envious in, every, in any way. Because Jesus said to Thomas, Blessed are those who did not see and yet believed. You and I have an opportunity to see God. We see God with the eye of faith. You and I have the, the blessed opportunity of hearing the voice of God as we read his word. In fact, we're able to hear the voice of God more than Moses ever could because we have the whole counsel of God here from Genesis through Revelation, which Moses did not have, of course. But besides that, God has provided for us a way by which we will actually see him in his unveiled glory one day. And that way is summarized for us in uh, 2 Peter. I'd like to read a few verses from 2 Peter, the first chapter. Kind of summarizes what the life of a Christian is to be. 1 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Simon Peter a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence, in your faith supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, 
godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. I think this makes it quite clear what it means to be a true believer, what it means to walk with the Lord. And as you follow those, those statements along, those verses along, step by step, it, uh, it, of course, could put up a standard that would seem almost in some ways too difficult for us, and, of course, in the flesh it would be. But by the Spirit of God, which he has granted to us, you go back to verse 3, he says where it's by his divine power that he's granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. And this comes through a true knowledge of him. As we walk in this way, as we walk in moral excellence and in knowledge and self-control and perseverance and brotherly kindness, we are in the process of being prepared as much as we'll be prepared in this life to pass on into his presence and then one day witness his glory. And if you turn to the 22nd chapter of Revelation, I'd like to read there five verses which help us to see a little bit of what that really means. What does it mean to become a participant in his eternal kingdom? In Revelation chapter 22 beginning at verse 1, John says, And he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. And on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his bondservants shall serve him. And notice verse 4. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. And there shall no longer be any night, and they shall not have any need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God shall illumine them, and they shall reign forever and ever. As the song we have often sung, we shall behold him face to face in all of his glory. That comes. That comes here. It comes at the end. It's a tremendous end to the book, right? If you, have you read the last chapter? <laughs> have you read the last page? It's, it's a wonderful description, of course, including the previous chapters also, of what it will mean for the believer to be in the presence of God and to behold him, to see his face. Moses could not see his face because God said, you cannot see my face and live. No man, meaning in this life, in this flesh, in the sinful condition, has ever seen God's face. Oh, sure, they have seen... Theophanies, Christophanies, they've seen visions, they've seen angelic forms, and, and we'll see that as we go into the 34th chapter. But they have never, no one has ever witnessed God in his glory unveiled. But one day we will. Because all sin will be removed, 
All decay will be removed and we will be in our perfect condition, which God intended, of course, in the beginning. Well, let's look at chapter 34 of Exodus, beginning with the first verse. Read the first four verses of chapter 34. Now the Lord said to Moses, Cut out for yourself two stone tablets like the former ones, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets, which you shattered. So be ready by morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. And no man is to come up with you, nor let any man be seen anywhere on the mountain. Even the flocks and the herds may not graze in front of that mountain. So he cut out two stone tablets like the former ones, and Moses rose up early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took two stone tablets in his hand. Let's stop there just for a moment. Moses in his anger had shattered the two tablets that he brought down from Mount Sinai before. The tablets that God had inscribed the Decalogue and he had carried these two tablets down the mountain very gingerly and, and, and with, with the, the great honor of being the carrier of the Decalogue. And as I mentioned to you before, I'm sure Joshua stood in awe as, as Moses came down and Joshua reached out to touch these stones that God had carved out and upon which God, God had uh, carved the Ten Commandments. But Moses, in his anger, righteous indignation actually, of course, had heaved them down the mountain and they had shattered. And now God says, Moses, we're going to do it again, only you're going to carve out the tablets this time. And so Moses spent the night chipping out the tablets. I don't know if you've ever tried to chip stone, but it's not an easy thing to do. If Mount Sinai is Jebel Musa, he probably didn't chip it off that mountain because that's granite. It's real hard to make stone tablets out of granite with nothing but a chisel. But uh, if he had slate or some other rock around, it would have been an easier task. But whatever are the details, they're not explained to us here. But all we know is that Moses carved out the two stone tablets. And as before, he was to present himself alone, alone before God on the top of the mountain. And the entire mountain was to be off limits to any other man and to any domesticated animal belonging to the Israelite nation. Obediently, Moses not only carved out the tablets, but Moses walked up that by now well-worn path that he has gone up that mountain and down that mountain and up that mountain. I mean, you know, you try to take, keep count of it, and after a while it really becomes numerous times. Moses went up and down that mountain uh, to intercede for his people and to receive God's word. And so, Again, early in the morning, he climbed the mountain and stood on the summit, tablets in hand, waiting for God to appear. Like the last verses of chapter 33, which we just looked at, the next few verses describe a very powerful encounter between God and the man Moses. Reading at verse 5, And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, 
who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. And Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and to worship. And he said, If now I have found favor in thy sight, O Lord, I pray, let the Lord go along in our midst, even though the people are so obstinate. And do thou pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as thine own possession. Can you picture Moses standing on the top of that barren summit in the morning light, stone tablet in each arm, looking up to heaven and calling out the name of God. I'm here, Lord. I'm here. God responded by bringing the cloud down on the mountaintop again. The cloud that had so frightened Israel as they stood at the base while, while he was receiving the Decalogue to the beginning, in the beginning. This cloud, which came down on the mountaintop, hid from every eye what would transpire up here except from the eye of Moses. And again, God shows Moses a measure of his glory. You know, we read the passage of Scripture where God says, I will give to you and I will press it down and I will shake it together and it will be running over. And, you know, Moses says, show me thy glory. And God does. And then he comes up the mountain. And he doesn't even pray that prayer. And God does it again. He passes in front of Moses, I believe, probably in angelic form. And he proclaimed his glory. And in the proclamation of his glory, and you know, so often we have this idea because we've gotten it from Hollywood movies or something that the glory of God is just this bright, great, bright, shining, overwhelming light, which it certainly is. But there's a whole lot more to the glory of God than just some great electromagnetic radiation that's liable to zap you. The glory of God is summarized in his attributes also. And some of those attributes are listed for us here in this particular passage of Scripture. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands and forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. God says to Moses that part of my glory and one of my great attributes is compassion. Compassion mercifulness. Do we not depend on that every day of our lives? The mercifulness of God. The Hebrew word from which the word compassion comes in this passage is the same root as the word womb. And what it means, what it implies, is the deep-seated nature of God's compassion. It comes from the very core of His being and envelops and protects us as the womb does the developing child. Ever thought of God's mercifulness as the great womb about us? Let me read from Psalm 103, beginning at verse 6. Psalm 103, verse 6. The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. 
He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame, and he is mindful that we are but dust. His compassion is not based upon our merit, but upon his character. And we've noticed that graciousness is so often tied together with the word compassion when we see it related to God. Graciousness is to show favor, as God did to Moses. He said, I have granted to you my favor. God was gracious to Moses. He made it clear, as, as we read in the passage in the 33rd chapter, it wasn't because Moses was worthy of God's graciousness. graciousness. It was because God said, I will be gracious upon whom I will be gracious. It's part of his sovereignty. It's part of his nature. Compassion and grace, compassion and grace, they always seem to be linked together whenever God is the subject. Let me read from the minor prophet Joel. Joel comes right before Amos, chapter 2, reading at verse 12. Again, we see these terms linked, as they so often are. Joel 2, 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, and with fasting, weeping, and mourning. And rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting of evil. Our God is compassionate. Our God is gracious. And somehow Moses witnessed that on the mountain. It was driven deep into his heart the compassion, the mercy, the grace, the favor of God. And then God goes on to say, and I am patient, slow to anger. Whenever you study world religions, you discover quickly that the human invented gods are generally very instantaneous in their anger and very unpredictable. They're capricious. You never know what they're going to do. You're out there trying to do your good thing and the, and, and the God zaps you. You know, your village burns down. You know, it's, it's like you can't determine what the gods are going to do. But this is not God. Yahweh is slow to anger. And he always gives repeated warnings. Think about, uh, of it. Back in Genesis, he gave the world 120 years before he sent the flood. He gave the Canaanites who dwelled in the land of Canaan 400 years before he brought the Israelites in to remove them from the land. And even more wondrous is the fact that he has given the world 2,000 years nearly since the resurrection to repent. And we can be extremely delighted. I you know what all words can we use to the fact that we are amongst the remnant in that 2,000 years who has repented. Constant rejection of God's love and mercy, however, will one day bring his wrath and his judgment, both individually and nationally. As God said in Genesis 6-3, my 
spirit shall not strive with man forever. There is a moment. God is slow to anger. God is patient. But there is a point at which repentance must come or it is too late. And then we have this, this wonderful attribute of loving kindness. Freely given love, which is not owed by God and is not earned by us. God does not have to show us his loving kindness, and we, have, we cannot earn it. Cannot earn it. As we, read, as we quote that verse we quote so often, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. It wasn't because the world was owed Jesus, or that the world earned Jesus. It was purely out of his loving kindness that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He sends the rain on the just and the unjust alike. Sometimes we're not too sure if that's fair. Not necessarily the rain, but in other ways. But as the Heavenly Father, I mean, we think about that term, Heavenly Father, He displays His love and kindness to those whom He has adopted, but even to those who reject that adoption. It's amazing when you think about it. Psalms, of course, uses the phrase loving-kindness hundreds of times. Let me just read a little bit from the first portion of Psalm 118. Psalm 118, where we read, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His loving-kindness is everlasting. Oh, let Israel say his loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let the house of Aaron say his loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let those who fear the Lord say his loving kindness is everlasting. And certainly all of you, as you've read through the Psalms, have been impressed by the 136th Psalm. I won't read it this morning. But all 26 verses of the 136th Psalm end with the phrase, for his loving kindness is everlasting lasting. It's like a hammer blow. Bang. Didn't get it the first time. Comes back, comes back, comes back, comes back. For his loving kindness is everlasting. Even when his wrath is poured out, his loving kindness is everlasting. Even when judgment comes, his loving kindness is everlasting. We have to view the world and its history and, and the story of, of, that we see in Scripture from Genesis through Revelation from God's point of view. You know, so many will tell you if God really loved the world, He wouldn't let these mid-air collisions happen and all these people die. He wouldn't let Rwanda and Burundi end up in this bloodbath with thousands and tens of thousands dying and children being killed. He wouldn't allow all of this if God were really loving we have to understand his loving kindness from the perspective of God. We have just an imperfect view of it. We have a selfish view of it. We don't see it from the point of perfection. I mean, his loving kindness is everlasting. And that's what it proclaims. That's who he is. And yet judgment is part of that. And it is inevitable. And as we look further at these attributes, we'll see that a little more clearly. The fifth attribute given here is truth, emeth, which so often comes with loving kindness. Loving kindness and truth. Loving kindness and truth. (laughs) 
God is not just, you know, the old granddaddy with the white hair sitting up there in the rocking pier going back and forth with this just sweet, loving feeling towards everybody. Connected with it is truth. Truth in the sense of God is absolute dependability. God will carry out his word to the letter. God will fulfill every one of his promises. God is truth. We all have so often quoted the verse where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And that's one of the verses that makes it impossible for us to be universalists. To just say, well, you know, it's... Well, I don't know if you read, you read the details about that mid-air collision over there near New Delhi. And uh, they said they couldn't even identify some of the bodies, so they just apportioned them out according to the proportion of, of, of religions that were on the plane. The percentage that were Hindu, the percentage that were Muslim, the percentage of Christian, they just kind of divided up the bodies uh, proportionately to be buried according to that style because we're all the children of God anyway, they said. Scripture says, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He didn't say he had the truth. He didn't even say he spoke the truth. He said he was the truth. He is the truth. There is no truth outside of God, yet the world believes there is. The world believes a lie. These five attributes that we read about here in that uh, fifth verse, uh, sixth verse, in, in that particular passage, are attributes that you and I can know experientially and recognize them as attributes of God only if we know Him intimately and are walking with Him by faith. Let me back up to the 86th Psalm, Psalm 86, beginning at verse 11. Psalm 86, verse 11. Teach me thy way, O Lord. I will walk in thy truth. Unite my heart to fear thy name. I will give thanks to thee, O Lord my God, with all my heart, and will glorify thy name forever. For thy loving kindness towards me is great, and thou hast delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, arrogant men have risen up against me, and a band of violent men have sought my life, and they have not set thee before them. But thou, O Lord, art a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abundant in loving kindness and truth. Turn to me and be gracious to me. O grant thy strength to thy servant, and save the son of thy handmaid. Show me a sign for good, that those who hate me may see it and be ashamed. Because thou, O Lord, hast helped me and comforted me. Who? Who? The God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness and truth. I think it's really important that we understand the attributes of God. And sometimes that's hard to do if we have been born and raised in the modern church. Because so often in the modern church, we, we get away from basic doctrine and basic understanding of the truth. We get away from some of the great hymns of the church, which give us basic doctrine and truth. And, and as a result, we, we kind of are on a, on a mushy foundation because we don't really know who is this God we worship. We don't really know what it means to be his child because we're not sure who the Father is. And that's to be the goal of our life, is to come to know him. As Moses prayed, show me thy glory. And, and seeing God's glory is coming to know what it means to know a God who's gracious, 
a God who's merciful, a God who's compassionate, a God who has loving kindness and truth and patience. And to know those attributes in the biblical sense of them, not in our human sense, where we make kind of a mush ball out of God, where we understand that he is perfect and holy and just. And, and those also are attributes, as we'll see here in a moment. You and I came to know the reality of, of these attributes to the degree to which we know them uh, because of our repentance of sin and the new life which was given to us. And that repentance and new life was dependent upon yet another attribute of God, and that is the attribute of forgiveness. God forgives the sin of the truly repentant. God says, I will remember their sin no more in Jeremiah. And I, I'm, I trust you do, as I do, love this, this prayer in Nehemiah that was prayed by the Levites as Israel went through a, a great revival after they had returned from the captivity, they're back in the promised land, they're, they've built the wall of, of the city, and Ezra is there, and Nehemiah is there, and, and the, the, the um, Levite leaders are there, and they lead Israel in this public confession of sin, this great prayer. And I'd like to read this portion of it, beginning in chapter 9 of Nehemiah, verse 16. But they, our fathers, acted arrogantly. They became stubborn and would not listen to thy commandments. And they refused to listen and did not remember thy wondrous deeds which thou hadst perform, performed among them. So they became stubborn and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt's, Egypt. But thou art a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And thou didst not forsake them, even when they made for themselves a calf of molten metal and said, This is your God who brought you up from Egypt and committed great blasphemies. Thou in thy great compassion, did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud did not leave them by day to guide them on their way, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they were to go. Sometimes as you read through the Old Testament, you wonder why God had the author, the, the writer, so many times repeat what God had done for Israel. Well, the answer, of course, to that is, look at Israel <laughs> and see how slow they were to learn and so often, how often they had to be told again and how quickly they forgot all that God had done for them, the great miracles he performed for them and acted arrogantly as the Levites included in their prayer and committed great blasphemies in the face of the God who had done these wondrous things and revealed himself to them over and over again. The last attribute of God which is given to us in this particular passage in Exodus is the attribute of justice. This is probably one of the attributes of God least understood by most, particularly those who accuse God of being unjust. God's holy nature requires that the soul which sins against him be cast out of his presence. A sinful person cannot stand in the presence of the holy God, period. And that is the just condemnation, condemnation of the disobedient. But as we are so 
grateful for, I'm sure. God provided a way for sinners to be freed from this condemnation by sending his Son to take our punishment for us. When Christ died and when Christ descended into hell, he fulfilled God's justice on behalf of those who would repent from their sinful lifestyle and receive the Spirit of God into their hearts. Repentance, reception. But the passage of Scripture tells us he will not allow the guilty to go unpunished. Well, who in the world are the guilty? Well, the guilty, of course, are the unrepentant, those who will not repent, those who have rejected all that God has done, who refuse to submit to the sovereign God. And that is the issue of the human race. We are an arrogant, stubborn people. And we will not bow our knee to anyone, supposedly, even though the people who are, un, who are unwilling to, re, to bow the knee to God have already bowed the knee to the prince of this world, to Satan. They don't even know it in many cases. Those who remain unrepentant will receive the justice they deserve, which is everlasting separation from God. How, how could one want to be in the presence of the God that they had rejected and refused and would not bow to? And therefore they have to go somewhere and it is out of his presence into everlasting darkness. Now one of the verses that is hard to grasp sometimes in this passage is the seventh verse in Exodus 34 where God says after saying that he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. That does not sound just, does it, as you read it straight out. This, however, is not a statement of vindictiveness, nor is it a statement of guilt by association. Well, because your grandfather was a jerk, you're a jerk, and therefore, you know, you deserve the same punishment. God makes clear what he believes and, and how he views this. He says to us, and we read the passage before in Deuteronomy 24, Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their fathers. Each is to die for his own sin. So what we have here is a restatement of the second commandment, or at least a portion of the second commandment. In that commandment, God warned his people that they were not to worship idols because, he says, I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations to those who hate me. This passage in, in Exodus 34 simply leaves off the last few words, but they are implied. We're not talking about guiltless people, innocent people who paid for the sin of their father, their grandfather, their great-grandfather. We're talking about people who hate God just as their fathers and grandfathers did. I think there are three important truths that can be derived from this, sh this simple statement there in the seventh, chapter, seventh verse of Exodus 34. And the first is that God is patient. God is slow to anger. And as we have witnessed it historically, biblically and non-biblically, or extra-biblically, uh, God will allow a sinful nation to persist through several generations before he will punish in many instances. 
We, we saw this when we studied Genesis <laughs> years ago, where God had promised Abraham that after 400 years of oppression in a foreign land, his descendants would be brought back to the land of Canaan and it would be given to them. But why 400 years? Well, God says very specifically, because the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. God suffered the existence of the Amorites for another 400 years, giving them the opportunity to repent if they would. Of course, he knew they wouldn't, but he gave them that opportunity. And, and this was also implied. You remember a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the 32nd chapter of Exodus where Moses offered to have his name blotted out of the book of life on behalf of Israel. And God responded that whoever sins against me, him will I blot out. I cannot blot you out on their behalf. Him will I blot out. But it's what God said after that that applies here. He then promised to send his angel before Israel for the time being. And then he makes a very kind of frightening statement. He says, in the day when I punish, I will punish them for their sin. Because God knew Israel would be a stiff-necked people through another 38 years, 39 years out in the wilderness, and the day would come when they would all die out except for those under 20 and Joshua and Caleb. Because of their sin, he, he forgave them of their sin, but he knew the sin would be repeated. And so in the day when he punished he would punish them. Well, there are two other truths, I think, in this passage which are important, but I don't have time to develop them this morning, simply to say that I believe this passage also teaches us contrast. Contrast between God's loving kindness to a thousand generations and His wrath to only three or four. Then lastly, the universal truth that rebels tend to beget rebels who beget rebels who beget rebels. This is a principle that God, of course, understood very well. And it's very difficult to break that pattern. It, ha it can happen, of course. God can miraculously step in, but so often it doesn't happen. And sin persists even to the third and fourth generation. Well, we'll study those next week.